Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion stops here. Uh, If I said I was going to do a show on scandal, what might you think I was going to talk about? Perhaps our president's involvement in uh, Hunter Biden's dirty dealings, or the Dodgers and the drag queens, the the whole woke agenda that's been revealed in the uh, document on the synod, um, synodality, the working document, the Instrumentum Laboris, 27,000 words uh, exploring new ways to be church uh, without once mentioning the name of Jesus Christ. That's, uh, that's a new way of being church for, that, for sure. But, uh, but no, no, I do not want to talk about scandals, but about scandal itself. Now, when you hear the word scandal, you might think of the worldly definition, which is some moral, ethical, or legal wrongdoing that triggers public outrage. Uh, And that usually involves some hypocrisy, so corrupt politicians or cops that commit crimes, um, doctors that uh, do something uh, that compromise the public health, that sort of thing. And what Catholics usually mean by scandal uh, is the definition found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2284. Scandal is an attitude or behavior which leads another to do evil. So scandal is about giving bad example that could lead others into sin. So like clergy that don't practice what they preach or worse, you know, I mean, think of former Cardinal McCarrick, for instance. And, and, and this Catholic understanding is consistent with the dire warning of our Lord in Matthew 18. Woe to the world because of scandals, for it must needs be that scandals come. But nevertheless, woe to that man by whom the scandal cometh. Okay, so that's worldly scandals. But he that shall scandalize one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone should be hanged about his neck and that he should be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now that's the Catholic uh, understanding of uh, scandal, causing one of our Lord's little ones to, to sin or to stop believing in him. How many people have left the church over scandal in, say, the last 50 years? You know, I just read this morning that a half a million Catholics in Germany left the church in the last year alone. Now, you think that might have something to do with that the scandalous German synodal way? I think it might. Now, in Matthew 16, uh, Peter's confession of faith prompts our Lord to to pronounce blessings on him, to give him the keys of the kingdom. Um, And then, Scripture says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. But Peter rebuked him. God forbid, Lord, that such a fate never befall you. And then Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art a scandal unto me, because thou savorest not the things that are of God, but the things that are of men. Jesus says Peter is a scandal to him. Scandal comes from the Greek word scandalon, and literally means a stumbling block. Uh, In the Holy Land of the first century, when it came time to slaughter the sheep, they'd run them uh, down a chute one at a time. And at the end of the chute, there was a rectangular block of stone. And when the sheep hit that stumbling block, its forelegs would buckle, making it a simple matter to uh, slaughter it, uh, you know, kosher style, by slitting its throat. So a scandal on, something that caused a sheep to stumble and be killed. Now, when Jesus called Peter a scandal 
a stumbling block. It means that Peter is tempting him to go against the will of the Father. So stumbling blocks are, are certain things in life that tempt us to sin or cause us to sin. And Scripture warns us to be aware of what these things are, to avoid them, and wherever possible to remove them from our lives. So later on today, we're going to be talking about stumbling blocks in our lives and what to do about them. Okay, what else? Oh, I'm sure that you know on the 16th of June, Terry and Jesse and Bishop Strickland and about 5,000 others gathered at Dodger Stadium to make reparation for the Dodgers uh, choosing to honor at their annual Gay Pride Night the so-called Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which in reality is an all-male drag queen group that uh, regularly performs these inconceivably vulgar exhibitions that blaspheme our Lord and ridicule uh, his holy church and make a mockery of the selfless works of charity that are performed by real Catholic nuns. In other words, they are an anti-Catholic hate group. Now understand, this was not a political protest. It was a public act of reparation. And so unlike uh, typical political protests, whether the press calls them peaceful protests or not, it was a truly peaceful event. There, was, there wasn't a single arrest. There, there wasn't a single uh, shot fired. There was no fire set or bricks thrown, no, no threats, no violence, just a prayerful gathering to make acts of reparation for outrages committed against the Sacred Heart of Jesus and to pray for the conversion of the so-called sisters and their you know, uh, alphabet soup of fellow travelers. Now, support for this event has been <clears throat> overwhelmingly positive, and, and we uh, did incur expenses uh, to the point that we actually have asked for some special help. If you go on the website, you can see there's a donate button. But uh, uh, there are still those who would criticize public actions like the Rally of Reparation. Uh, and then they would say that, you know, true Christians turn the other cheek. But, but what did our Lord really mean when he said those words? Uh, and to some, the words turn the other cheek mean that, uh, give the impression that a good Christian uh, must tolerate abuse, that a, a Christian should be a doormat. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, take an example of uh, St. Augustine. Augustine wondered at first if Jesus what, you know, meant what he said literally. And so he searched the Gospels and discovered that Jesus himself did not obey the commandment literally. After Jesus was arrested and brought to the house of the high priest, when, when he was struck while being interrogated, Jesus didn't turn the other cheek. He defended himself. He said, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Augustine also points out that after the Apostle Paul was arrested and struck on the mouth at the command of the high priest, he did not obey Jesus' command to turn the other cheek. On the contrary, he said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. How, how can you sit there to judge me according to the law and then in defiance of the law order me to be struck? In other words, Paul defended himself. He stood on his rights as a Roman citizen. <clears throat> and if the... By the example of St. Paul and even Jesus himself, it's clear that the commandment to turn the other cheek is not to be taken literally. Then, then what was the reason for Jesus' teaching? Well, St. Augustine says that turn the other cheek means that one should never return evil for evil. You shouldn't imitate the behavior of your assailant. Rather, forgive the evildoer, pray for his salvation, 
According to St. Augustine, Jesus' command to turn the other cheek points to the uniquely Christian motive, which is love. And that's why we make reparation. But we should never tolerate intolerable behavior, if at all possible. And so that's another thing we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, setting proper boundaries in our own life. Uh, Okay, um, as usual, though, now I'd like to to look at the readings for next Sunday, Epistle and Gospel, but this time for uh, for the ordinary form. That's the 13th Sunday in ordinary time. And the epistle is taken from Romans chapter 6. Brethren, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. If then we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. As to his death, he died to sin once and for all. As to his life, he lives for God. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. So, Paul's saying that baptism joins us to Christ crucified and risen. United in his death, our sins are put to death. United with his rising, our souls are filled with life. That's the good news. And Paul's alluding to the liturgy of baptism, which in his day was by immersion. The catechumen is submerged in water and his body, like, like a body is buried in a grave, only to rise again to the new life of grace in God. Also, that's about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, the kingdom of God within. We're going to talk about that later today as well. And now the gospel for the 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time from Matthew 10 Jesus said to his apostles, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones to drink because the little one is a disciple. Amen, I say to you, he will surely not lose his reward. So Jesus gives us a striking image here of the demands of Christian discipleship. Uh, The Jews didn't need any description about taking up the cross because they were all too familiar with that Roman form of execution. So what Jesus is saying here, that faithfulness to him is going to require self-denial and suffering and possibly even death. Before his passion, the cross was a symbol of suffering and shame, as the old song puts it. But then it became a glorious symbol of, of fidelity to Christ. And his example of giving a cup of cold water to one of his little ones is that a model of of, um, unselfish service. Whether he means the apostles or the poor or a literal child, service rendered to them is service rendered to him. And that's no nonsense. Okay, back with more right after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Stumbling blocks and identifying stumbling blocks in your life. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus makes the following three statements. If thy hand scandalize thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than to have than having two hands to go into hell. And if thy foot scandalize thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter lame into everlasting life than having two feet to be cast into the hell of unquenchable fire. And if thy eye scandalize thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee with one eye to enter into the kingdom of God than having two eyes to be cast into the hell of fire. Now, obviously, our good Lord is using some pretty strong hyperbole here to make it clear that we are to remove from our lives the things that cause us to stumble. In other words, to stress the importance of cutting sin and the near occasions of sin, those stumbling blocks, the temptations out of our life. And he identifies the hand and the foot and the eye as three causes of scandal. So that is uh, what we do and where we go and what we see. And painful as it may be, practicing self-discipline in what we do where we go, and what we allow into our hearts and minds through our eyes is absolutely essential if we would be true followers of Christ. Even to the point of giving up a habit or a job or a relationship that gets in the way of our relationship with Christ, who is the way to salvation. Now, sometimes giving up things that, uh, that do not coincide with God's will for your life may seem to you every bit as painful as cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye. But following Christ is worth the sacrifice. Doing his holy will is more important than any potential loss. Uh, nothing should stand in the way of your relationship with Christ. Therefore, you should be ruthless, must be ruthless in removing sin and temptation from your life now. You must know, love, and serve God in this life in order to be happy with him in the next to enjoy eternal life and avoid eternal suffering involves your choices about this life and making those choices from an eternal perspective. So, scandals and stumbling blocks in our lives are the things that cause us or tempt us to sin. For some, that stumbling, uh, stumbling block might be drugs or alcohol. Others may have a problem with lust or pornography. Still others may be consumed with love for money or gossip or etc., etc. Uh, I studied college, uh, psychology while pursuing a certificate in Christian counseling a, a few years ago. And I was taught that America is a nation of addicts, that we are alcoholics and foodaholics, sexaholics and shopaholics, rageaholics and, and approval junkies. And we're now on our third or fourth generation of couch potatoes, hopelessly addicted to uh, social media and video games and online porn and all the many forms of, of transitory pleasures and toxic thinking that invade our hearts and minds 24-7 via the computer and the smartphone. Uh, and I recall thinking to myself, you know, this is back in 2005, I thought that, that list sounds kind of familiar. It's pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, sloth, it's the seven deadly sins. And Satan has been taking advantage of them for a very long time. He understands very well our weaknesses, and he does his darndest to exploit them. And that's why St. Peter wrote in his first epistle, Be sober and watch. 
because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion goeth about seeking whom he may devour. The message of the Bible is clear. Uh, We're in real and present danger, and whatever is causing us to stumble needs to be removed from our lives so that we can be right with God. It's not worth forfeiting our eternal souls to chase some temporary pleasure. As Jesus asks in Mark's Gospel, For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? So what to do? Um, Well, first off, successfully removing spiritual stumbling blocks from our lives requires an honest assessment of what those stumbling blocks are. And we need to recognize the behaviors and the situations that put it put us at risk and then be strong enough to eliminate them. In the act of contrition, this is called a firm purpose of amendment. I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to sin no more and to avoid the unnecessary occasions of sin. But this requires discernment. And we begin by making a daily examination of conscience. Holding the choices that we make up to the mirror of Christ will help us to discern just what our stumbling blocks really are. And this often requires a change of mindset. You know, St. Paul said to the Romans, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you will be able to discern the will of God and know what is good and acceptable and perfect. And as he said in his letter to the Colossians, fix your thoughts on the things that are above and not of the things that are on the earth. But identifying, even removing, stumbling blocks from our lives isn't enough. Often, once we remove the stumbling blocks, well, once we remove the stumbling blocks, we need to replace them with activities that glorify God and serve others. That is uh, what we were created to do. Uh, This is the will of God for you, says St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians, your sanctification. And once we successfully remove the stumbling blocks from our lives, we'll have more time to do the things that are pleasing to God and help us to grow in holiness. Uh, Also, the more we glorify him and serve him, especially by serving others, the more we begin to experience true peace. Uh, St. Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is a blessing, a positive blessing, when we manage to take something that was a stumbling block in our lives, an obstacle to our true happiness, and replace it with something that God wants us to do instead. You will be blessed. Not not a material blessing, but a spiritual one. And that's far more important. So where to start, okay? Well, when we make a good examination of conscience, and this is probably especially true if you've you know, not been doing so regularly, but if we're honest, we will likely discover multiple stumbling blocks that need to be removed from our lives at any given time. And it can be daunting, to say the least. But there's an old saying, by the inch it's a cinch, by the yard it's hard. So it's a good idea, however many stumbling blocks you identify, you choose just one that you want to remove from your life. And ideally, it would be the most destructive one. I mean, if, if, you're, uh, you know, if you're shooting heroin and biting your nails, probably you should deal with that heroin thing first, right? Uh, in any case, once you've selected the stumbling block that you want to remove from your life, there are seven things that you can do to help you be successful. First, pray. As, 
as with everything else, prayer is the most important thing that we can do to remove stumbling blocks from our lives. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, for human beings, this is impossible, but for God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible. Therefore, prayer should be our first response and not our last resort. We need to pray early and often if we hope to be successful in rooting out the stumbling blocks of our life. Uh, a second thing is to write it down. You know, this is generally good advice in any kind of goal setting. You know, writing down a specific goal forces us to, uh, forces us to clearly identify what the goal is. And the same goes with the stumbling blocks that you want to remove from your life. They need to be specifically identified. Thirdly, tell someone. Now, behavioral specialists uh, advocate telling someone about your goal because they say that it adds accountability and it can increase your chances of being successful. However, when it comes to some kind of uh, spiritual stumbling block, particularly if it's a moral one, you know, like especially depending upon what that stumbling block is, you should be prudent who you share it with, okay? So maybe, maybe your confessor and not your hairdresser, all right? And then number four, break it down. You don't have to accomplish your goals all at once. We've already established that it's a good idea to take those stumbling blocks on one at a time, and ideally beginning with the, the most destructive one. But with some major stumbling block, you may discover that removing that one obstacle should also be broken down into multiple steps. It's common wisdom that breaking big goals into several smaller goals can increase your chances of success, and the same in the spiritual life. Fifthly, plan that first step. I'm sure you know the old Confucian proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And sometimes having the courage to take that first step towards the goal is half the battle. But you still need a plan as they say, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. So plan the first step. And number six, once you started, keep going. The world, the flesh, and the devil will conspire to derail your efforts. Uh, Satan is the capital T tempter. He is a liar and the father of lies. And the last thing he wants is for you to remove the snares that he has laid for you. And so his temptations come from many places. They are relentless. Scripture says, Your adversary, the devil, goeth about seeking whom he may devour. He's not passive in this. He's active. And if you're to succeed in your goal, you have to persevere. Pray for perseverance. Keep your eye on the prize, as they say. And then finally, number seven. Well, it, it's the same as number one. Pray. Pray for the strength to cooperate with God's grace to remove the stumbling blocks from your life. Pray that God would help you discern the, uh, the, the best um, positive things to replace your stumbling blocks. And be absolutely certain to pray in thanksgiving, in continual gratitude for God's grace that none of us deserve, and for all the favors that he has granted to you throughout your life. The attitude of gratitude. Okay, so what have we learned? Uh, God has a plan for each one of us. I'm sure you've heard Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. However, God's plan for us is not going to work unless we follow it. And part of his plan for us is to identify and remove the stumbling blocks that cause us to sin. 
Mark's Gospel records three powerful statements of Jesus that highlight the importance of permanently removing the stumbling blocks in our lives that cause us to sin. If thy hand scandalize thee, cut it off. If thy foot scandalize thee, cut it off. If thy eye scandalize thee, pluck it out. Watch what you do, where you go, and what you see. And then finally, St. Paul reminds us of the positive things that God wants us to keep at the forefront of our minds. Finally, brethren, let your minds be filled with whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, you know what, before we, uh, well, I guess uh, we're just uh, run to the end of this segment, so I'll pick it up on the other side. You're listening or watching No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Super pleased to have you along with us today. We've been talking about removing stumbling blocks. We're going to move on to how to set boundaries and accomplish these goals. That and a lot more when we come back right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And I, I was going to mention before the break uh, that um, we have a new ministry. It's called uh, CRC Kids, and it's actually a YouTube channel. And um, I, I would, rather than going to, sending you to YouTube to wander around amidst all the snares uh, <laughs> of the evil one you'll find there, I suggest you go to vmpr.org, to our Virgin Most Powerful Radio website, and you scroll down and you will see the, a little, it looks like the VMPR logo, but kind of in cartoon style. And it says Catholic Resource Center Kids, okay? Uh, it is uh, like VMPR itself. These are ministries of the Catholic Resource Center. And we, uh, the first thing we put up was called My First Catechism. It's a series of animated uh, videos of a minute or so apiece. And it's a catechism for little kids. And then a couple weeks ago, I put up the Holy Mass, Our Greatest Gift to God which is uh, a series of four videos. It's only about six minutes, a little over six minutes total, uh, but it's separated into to four videos of you know less than two minutes apiece. So you can go to the, uh, the channel, you hit play all, and all four videos will play in order. Or if you've got kids or grandkids and you're uh, you know, actively teaching them about the Holy Eucharist, you know, step by step, you can play one video at a time and then discuss the content before moving on, or you just use it as a supplement to whatever catechism you're using, that kind of thing. Uh, first segment is about how Jesus instituted the Mass at the Last Supper. The second is about how Jesus offers himself in the Holy Mass. The third one explains the Mass as the highest form of worship. And then the fourth one is about the transubstantiation, how Jesus changes the bread and wine into his body and blood at Mass. Uh, more videos that are currently in pre-production, including some apologetics videos for kids. And we're going to have a First Communion Catechism coming up. Also, I'm, I'm about to upload a series of audio presentations. They, they're already done. I just need to, to, to get all of the um, descriptions and everything and get them all uploaded. Uh, and uh, I said audio presentations. Or technically, they're videos. I'm putting them on YouTube. But uh, the content is audio, just with on-screen titles. And it's essentially a harmony of the Gospels. Right, what they used to call a Bible history. 
lots of direct quotes from the Old Dewey Reams uh, translation, so it's, it's a good introduction to the Gospel and an introduction to the, the traditional English translation of the Bible as well. And I actually mentioned this when I was on the Terry and Jesse show last week, but since I still haven't posted it yet, still haven't uploaded them, um, and since we just talked about accountability, I'm telling you about it again so that I'll be sure to, to get it posted this week. All right. Um, last week, our parish priest at my home parish, our parish priests, I should say, were on their yearly retreat. And so we had a visiting priest who said Mass for us and also preached a parish mission on uh, you know Monday through Friday of last week. And you may have heard of him. He is a well-known Dominican retreat master and, uh, and uh, mission preacher. He's written several books on, um, and uh, appeared often on EWTN. And his, fa- his name is Father Emmerich Vogt, O.P. Now, Father Emmerich has been involved in the 12-step program for a long time. I did not realize that until I looked him up on the Internet. Uh, anyway, because his approach to recovery is so Catholic and so Thomistic, which you, you know, hardly surprising for a Dominican, um, but all of his spiritual counsel was so perfectly applicable to the universal struggle against sin and overcoming the roadblocks in your life. I didn't realize that uh, he came from a twelve-step background, you know, uh, or or maybe uh, you know this stuff is just super applicable to that. In in any case. Um, he gives you lots to help you answer the universal call to holiness, which is what we've been talking about. And I believe I had a bit of an epiphany last week listening to his talks. You know, full disclosure, if you don't already know, I spent my 20s as a frontman for a top 40 band. And we played music full time for a living. So five, six nights a week, nightclubs and hotel lounges and dance halls and so forth. And by my late 20s, I was smoking two packs a day. I was a heavy drinker. Uh, the band was on a road a lot, so I was essentially eating junk food three times a day. And uh, the fact that I was also in a very stressful codependent relationship uh, only made things worse. Anyway, I got out of that relationship at you know, 27 or so, and, and by the time I was 29, I stopped drinking cold turkey. You know, I was afraid I was an alcoholic. And, and everyone knows that an alcoholic can't ever have another drink without relapsing into his old behavior. And so I made the decision to stop drinking, and I didn't have another drop for two years. And um, until the night I proposed to Betty, and I ordered us a split of champagne. Now, over the years since then, you know, this has been you know, 30 years ago, uh, I have returned to social drinking. I like a beer with my dinner. Uh, once in a blue moon, if we go to a fancy restaurant, I might have a cocktail. But I've never been tempted to return to binge drinking. So, you know, I figured I must not have been an alcoholic for real because it wasn't all that difficult for me to stop, although I had Betty praying for me, and so maybe that's different from other times I've tried. Um, But, you know, and the point is, though, that I'm now able to drink socially without fear of relapsing. I promise this is going someplace, okay? (laughs) So I was at the doctor yesterday for my annual physical, and the nurse asked me all the questions. Do you smoke? No, I gave that up in um, 1989. Do you drink? Yes, I do. Have you had six or more drinks in one day in the last year? <laughs> six or more drinks in one day? Okay, so no, not, not for more than 30 years. But, but something else happened some 30 plus years ago. When I was 27 or so, somebody showed me some snapshots they'd taken of the band uh, on stage. 
And I discovered with, uh, you know, I was amazed to discover that I suddenly had a beer belly. And so I got on a scale and I was shocked to discover that I, w- I weighed 205 pounds. You know, that's like a fantasy weight for me now, but <laughs> 205 pounds, it was a shock at the time. I'd been thin as a rail my whole life, so I could not allow that to stand. And so I went on the Hollywood diet, right? Now, back then, nobody had ever heard of the term keto, and, and most people had never heard of Dr. Atkins either. Uh, you know, but, but the Hollywood diet, also known as the grapefruit diet, was in fact the first radically low-carb diet. And it had been around since the 1930s. Um, as the name implies, it was the go-to crash diet for Hollywood movie stars. And, you know, for that matter, it still is. So bacon and eggs for breakfast and salad and meat for lunch and non-starchy vegetables and more meat for dinner. And then each meal accompanied with half a grapefruit or four ounces of grapefruit juice. I lost 40 pounds in six weeks. I went from 205 to 165, and I was thrilled. Little did I know that my 30-year journey on the diet roller coaster had just begun. And by the way, if you do the math, 40 pounds in six weeks means that I lost an average of 6.66 pounds per week. Okay, six, six, six. I should have seen it coming. Uh, seriously, though, it, it took a few years to gain it all back, but I did, and then some. And so I went on another diet, and I lost weight again, and gained it all back again, and then some. And then we started having kids, six and all. And Betty would, would gain weight with the pregnancies, and I would gain weight, and she would lose it, and I wouldn't. So I'd go on another diet. Uh, again and again and again, rinse and repeat ad nauseum. Uh, I would lose 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 40, 60 even only to put it back on, and then some. You know, I, I, I reckon if I had kept off all the weight that I ever lost, I'd be back to my original weight of six pounds, seven ounces. The point is that while I may have stopped binge drinking and quit smoking, I obviously failed to identify and deal with my underlying issues because apparently I just traded my alcohol and tobacco addictions for a food addiction. And I I hope now that I realize that, you know, it's up to me to identify and remove those stumbling blocks. And that's no nonsense. Okay. Speaking of stumbling blocks, uh, getting over them is about setting boundaries. And what I'm about to share is primarily taken from a 2013 newsletter from Father Emmerich Vogt. So uh, thanks again, Father. Okay, boundaries. You know, I'm a medievalist. And virtually everybody has seen a medieval castle, at least, you know, in the movies. A large stone edifice, thick walls, battlements, towers, uh, maybe a moat. Uh, But the medieval town of Avila in Spain is like a city-sized castle in that the whole town is surrounded by a Romanesque wall, complete with battlements, 88 towers, and nine gates. And the walls were built to protect Avila from invasion, but also to control the flow of people and goods in and out of the city. And it also helped them to guard against outbreaks of the plague. Well, today, the fortified medieval city of Avila is the largest fully illuminated monument in the world. However, it's not only castles and cities that need proper boundaries. We do too. And it's important to understand, you know, where you end and I begin. Both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible relate stories that set consequences uh, for behaviors and show that it's a serious sin to trespass against others. And 
If it's a serious sin for me to trespass against you, the reverse must also be true as well. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, the size of a telephone book, and it too is full of boundaries that help to protect your soul and help you grow in sanctity. So you look at a worldly example, um, and Father brought up this. It's Vincent Bugliosi. Remember him? He was the prosecuting attorney in the infamous Manson family murder case. And he successfully prosecuted Charles Manson for the murders, even though Manson was not present when the murders were committed. But, you know, Bugliosi notes how important it was for him as a lawyer to set boundaries. Talks about how uh, many judges, you know, think of themselves as God Almighty in the courtroom. And one time he says a judge said to him in an angry tone, sit down, Mr. Bugliosi. And so he asked to meet him privately in, in the judge's chambers. And he told him that in order to do his job as prosecuting attorney for the people of Los Angeles, he needed to have credibility in the eyes of the jury. Therefore, he says, I cannot have a judge demean me in front of the jury. And he politely informed the judge, if it happens again, that he would gladly risk contempt to go after the judge in front of the jury just to show that he's not afraid of him. And no judge ever did it again because it's about setting boundaries. And he wrote a book called Outrage, The Five Reasons Why O.J. Got Away with Murder. And he said one of the reasons was that Marsha Clark allowed Judge Ito to demean her in front of the jury. But she failed, failed to set boundaries. We're going to continue to talk about how important setting boundaries are when we return. Lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, we're talking about setting boundaries, and uh, I, I just read before the uh, break the account of Vincent Bugliosi and how he had to set boundaries with the judge, even, and how that made him a successful attorney, and how failing to do that is one of the things that lost Marsha Clark and her team the uh, conviction of O.J. Simpson. Um, setting boundaries is important. You know, uh, Father talks about um, a woman that came to see him whose husband had an uh, anger problem. And he would, he would go off, he would rail at her and call her names even in front of the children. And, and, you know, she would cry and she went to Father, what do I do about it? And he said, you know, when your husband is emotionally sober, you need to explain to him, you know, sit down in, in, uh, in no uncertain terms, tell him, um, you know, what you did last night, you got angry, one, yet again, you took it out on me, you called me names in front of the children. If that happens one more time, and then she needs to fill in the blank with uh, appropriate consequences, you know, that are reasonable and, and responsible. You know, um, there's a reason, Father said, why fences you know, that are made to keep allowed, they have barbs on the top. There's a reason why, you know, um, uh, it's to ward off danger. And, and it's the same thing here with the, with the setting boundaries. said, you know, you need to feel the the barbs. She needs to stick to her guns. If he buys her flowers, she needs to say no. Um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, stick to it. You know, there's an old saying that people don't change because they see the light, but because they feel the heat. <laughs> you know, and it's a painful task to learn to set boundaries. And I know this for a fact. I was in a codependent relationship once upon a time, uh, and I was what they call 
an enabler. I, I unknowingly helped the situation go along, thinking that I was, you know, doing the right thing. Enabling is also known as the disease to please, right? Pleasers, enablers, they, they often think of themselves as kind and considerate, but in truth, they're afraid, and, and they're trying to protect themselves from being hurt in some way. And in their desire to ward off people's displeasure, they seek to please but end up tolerating intolerable, beha- intolerable behavior, which, which you can't do. I remember when I taught um, confirmation many years ago. My wife is the one that taught confirmation, and she got pregnant for the umpteenth time and said, you know, you need to step in because they don't have everybody to teach. Uh, they don't have enough teachers. And so I presented myself, and I was given the, the toughest class. The kids that went to public school probably hadn't darkened the door of a church since their first Holy Communion, the ones that were going to be a discipline issue. And I had discipline issues. You know, kids, kids were talking and not paying attention and, and all this stuff. And, and I finally realized, you know, I have to do something about this. And what I said was, how many of you here are here because you want to be. And not a single hand went up. I said, how many of you are here because your parents or grandparents are making you come? And virtually every hand in the room went up. I said, well, here's the thing. If that's the case, I don't want you here. If you're only here uh, to, to please somebody else, get out. This is an adult sacrament. If you come back here next week, I will expect you to participate in the class and, and do the assignments and pay attention and, and act like you belong here and you want to be here. And of course, I, I'm sure that a lot of these kids, you know, they, they didn't change their minds about why they wanted to be there, but they did change their behavior. And why? Because I laid down the law? Because I dominated the classroom? No. Because, frankly, because I, I died to myself. Because I, I put, you know, aside my need to be liked uh, by establishing those appropriate boundaries. Okay, I, I mentioned before that I'm a medievalist. And, and, you know, a lot of what we shared in this program today may sound uh, rather modern, but I assure you that the concepts uh, are, in fact, thoroughly medieval, coming as they do primarily from Scripture and uh, the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. And in the end, it, it's all about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's medieval, too, as modern as that might sound. It's very medieval to make Jesus, who's the king of the universe, the Lord of your life. You know, I try and make Jesus the Lord of my life, but the fact is sometimes when I sit down at table, the food is Lord. And why should that be? I mean, I understand it intellectually, but why do I have so much trouble identifying why? Why do I continue to eat to excess? I know it's not good for me, and especially I know that God's law is set against gluttony. And, well, at least it's comforting to know that I'm not alone. I'm not the first person to deal with this. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Uh, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. And that's St. Paul. (laughs) Okay, so I'm trying to cut myself a little slack. Uh, And, and, you know, speaking of modern versus medieval, you take, for example, the movies of Woody Allen. All right, Woody Allen, very modern. 
very existential. His movies are typically narrated by him, either in voiceover or on screen, as you know, the, the, the lines that are spoken by his character. But it's clear that those lines that he's speaking out loud are meant to re- represent um, uh, what psychiatrists call his inner monologue. You know, albeit his narration is meant to be funny, of course. Um, for example, uh, if only God would give me some clear sign, uh, like making a deposit in my name in a Swiss bank account, because uh, money's better than poverty, you know, if only for financial reasons. All right, so it's very, very modern. But then you take the movie Lady Hawk, which is set in the Middle Ages, and it's based on an authentically medieval story. You know, some of the costumes and music are kind of anachronistic, but if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's got Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer and, uh, and Matthew Broderick. You know, as, as with Woody Allen, the main character, who is a young thief named Philippe the Mouse and, and played by a young Matthew Broderick, he keeps up a running commentary throughout the film. But it's not his interior monologue because he's not talking to himself, but rather he's talking to the Lord. And again and again, this is a device that's used primarily for humor. You know, for, uh, for example, at one point, uh, he promises the Lord that if he survives some ordeal, he'll never steal again. And once he's in the clear, he immediately steals someone's purse. And then he says, I know I promised, Lord, but I also know that you know what a weak-willed person I am. Uh, and the point is that, that Philippe, this medieval thief, has a personal relationship with Jesus, you know, however dysfunctional. And that includes an ongoing dialogue. He's literally praying always. And, and in the process of the story, of course, he discovers that he is, in fact, capable of acts of virtue. And that includes acts of, of bravery and, and selfless service and of love. The message of Our Lady of America, we talked about this a lot in the last year or two, since it was approved for private devotion, Uh, The the message for Catholic Americans in our own day is to be devoted to the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity. That's an important truth, uh, that when we are in the state of grace, God dwells within us. You know, we talk a lot about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes to us in baptism and we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But that indwelling, you know, the, the... there's only one God, and so whenever you know we speak of them in by analogy as as uh, you know Father, Son, and not um, not as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we speak of them by analogy as Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. These are these are the not the who they are, but the what they do. And of course, any action taken by the Trinity is taken by all the persons of the Trinity. And so there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our dear Lord said as much in in Luke seventeen twenty one. For lo, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. And this reality, I think, is beautifully expressed in a prayer uh, of the great medieval saint Bernard of Clairvaux. And so I ask you to take, just, you know, slow down for a minute, take a deep breath, and consider all the things we talked about today and see if you don't all find it or find it all expressed, and expressed much better than my poor attempt, as we pray along with the words of St. Bernard. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, 
Take away scandals from your kingdom, which is my soul, and reign there. You who alone have the right. For greediness comes to claim a throne within me. Haughtiness and self-assertion would rule over me. Pride would be my king. Lust says, I will reign. Ambition, detraction, envy, and anger struggle within me for the mastery. I resist as far as I am able. I struggle according as help is given me. I call on my Lord Jesus. For his sake I defend myself, since I acknowledge myself as wholly his possession. He is my God. Him I proclaim my Lord. I have no other king than my Lord Jesus Christ. Come then, O Lord, and disperse these enemies by your power, and you shall reign in me. For you are my king and my God. Amen. O Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, that's just about it for another edition of No Nonsense Catholic. I, it was kind of personal for me. Uh, I know that maybe a lot of it sounded like, uh, like uh, general advice, but it's advice that uh, I personally need to take. And, uh, and so I, I thank you for coming along with me. I wanted to share something also. I, I do my spiritual reading in the morning, typically read uh, every year through the Imitation of Christ. And after I prayed the office this morning, yeah, I went to chapter 6, Concerning Inordinate Affections, and it tied perfectly into today's topic. He said, When people desire anything to an excessive degree, they immediately lose their peace of soul. The proud and avaricious are always perturbed, while the humble and the poor in spirit live in peace and contentment. Those who are not mortified are easily overcome by small temptations. We find our peace only by resisting our passions, not by giving in to them. And that's no nonsense. All right. Thanks again. Please do uh, visit vmpr.org. Uh, you can help support the, uh, the defray the cost of the Rally of Reparation. You find a donate button there. You can become a monthly donor. We'd certainly love uh, for you to do that. Also, scroll down. You can find the CRC Kids logo. Click on that. It'll take you right to our YouTube channel where you can see uh, the ongoing efforts that we have to help you to catechize the next generation of faithful Catholics. All right. I hope to see you next week. In the meantime, may God richly bless you and your family.